All right, good morning, church. Good morning, good morning. We are in a series, we're actually back in a series that we started back in September and we had a little hiatus um, as we got into Easter season. We, we were in there um, and did a Who Are We, Who We Are series, which was three weeks, and now we're back in this. So if you've just started attending Manuka Bible Church from like Easter on, let me just fill, fill in the gaps. We started back in September trying to help people understand that this Bible, this, this thing that we look to as God's Word, is not something just that's this arbitrary collection of stories here and there, but actually is this cohesive story that God is telling from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And so what we did is we took portions of Scripture all the way from Genesis on and started to teach through those. And Actually, all the scripture that we've been preaching through have been in the copies of the story, and you can get those at the guest hub if you haven't gotten them yet. Right now, we're in chapter 28 of that, but we're going to be finishing off this year and going right up to the very end of the Bible that's going to be um, ending right around the end of May. And so um, the thing that's really neat is that it's been giving us a chance to see what it is that God is doing throughout the Bible. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn in them to Acts chapter 1, and this morning we'll be reading the first 11 verses of that together, and then uh, we'll be jumping on over to the... 13 verses that begin chapter 2, or if you've got your copy of the story, you can go ahead and turn to page 389. Um, but while you're turning there, just to give you a little bit of backdrop on where we're reading from. T today, as I said, we're basically sitting in the book of Acts, and Acts was written by uh, a guy named Luke. Luke was the same guy who wrote the gospel of Luke, and he was not a guy who walked around with Jesus. He was not a guy who hung out with Jesus. He was a guy who was a historian who had heard about Jesus and wanted to fact check it. And so from a historian's vantage point, he goes through and talks to the eyewitnesses and goes through and investigates and follows up, which produces the Gospel of Luke. The book of Acts is the sequel. It's basically, uh, it, the book of Luke leads up to the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. The book of Acts picks up right where he leaves off, leaves off and goes from there. And so th when we see the book of Acts, we, we're understanding this is a continuation of a story. Now, he's telling this to a guy named Theophilus, and we have no clue who Theophilus is. Like, we don't know where this guy lived. We don't know what his profession was. We didn't know how old he was. We know very little about this guy named Theophilus. In fact, the fact that we know so little about Theophilus leads some people to believe that he could be a guy, he could be an actual dude, or he could be like, Theophilus could be a pseudonym for the church, that Luke is, in fact, writing to the church because Theophilus, in Greek, means friend of God, Theophilus. And so he's writing to, I'm writing to you, church, about this Jesus that you believe in, but I don't want you simply just to attach yourself to some myth or some, some, some legend. I want to actually let you, the friend of God, the followers of Jesus, know that this is fact-checkable information. And that's where we start, at the beginning of chapter 28 of the story, or if you've got your Bible, Acts chapter 1. So if you could stand for the reading of Scripture. And Luke starts off this way. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because again, one of the big things that they're like massively 
interested in is when are we going to kick out the Romans? We're under the Roman oppression. When's that going to happen? And Jesus is like, I don't don't have time for that. That's not what we're talking about. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you've seen him go into heaven. If you jump on down to chapter 2 or um, the middle of page 390 in the story, it says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Ferga and Pamphylia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. The amazing thing of what's happening right here is you've got this, this moment in time. This is not a Christian group, okay? These are Jesus-following Jews who are later called Christians, but they wouldn't even, that title wasn't even chucked out there yet. They're Jewish people who look at their long-standing history as always being about the past. We bank on the past. It's secure. We know who we are because of our past. Now all of a sudden, our, the person we thought to be the Messiah died and rose again. And now all of a sudden, everything is absolutely new. Actually, it's uncertain. It's crazy. It's weird because it's, it's disheveled everything that we took to be secure and solid. And now we're, we're trying to figure out reality as it is. But it's new. It's a brand new reality. Now, this word new was important to them, but it's massively important to us in 2018. And if you want to know how important the word new is, go to Jewel. Walk down any aisle at Jewel, and you will see the marketers have done something with almost every package. Every package says, that's right, it does. And they're trying to tell you something. It's usually up in the top quarter, corner, um, quarter section of a package, and it says, this is new. So if you before loved this product, guess what? It's even better. If you hated this product before, no sweat, because now it's new. It's improved. It's something that is really, really good. In fact, new is something that we like. Unless you're into vintage cars, you want to get a car that's, that's right. It even has the car smell. Thank you, whoever you are. Yes, new. It's something that's really important. New always, always is good, unless the product is bad. In the 80s, they did something really dumb. I, I'm a, okay, I, Where's Jim? Okay, Jim's a Pepsi guy. I'm a Coca-Cola guy. 
Coca-Cola or Coke Classic is so awesome because of the fact that it's got this, this recipe that burns your throat. The carbonation level is so high. And I, you can just slam that and you feel the burn. You're like, yes, it's working. I love that. In the 80s, Coke tried to be Pepsi by taking their burn and trying to add more sweetener to it so it tasted like a Pepsi. Lame. And so that is something that they tried to do. Now, the thing is that, that if it's a new product, that's good. If it's a good product, this was not a good product. But new is something that always, outside of that, is something that people point to as, this is good. Why? Because it's new. If something has got more life in it, it has been renewed. It's something that, that, that if you really like a book, you renew it from the library. New is always good. In fact, even in our storytelling, we have a nostalgic culture, but this has been like for centuries we've been doing this. We take old stories and we bring them back. Let me give you an example. What show is this? Okay, how many of you grew up watching Lost in Space? Okay, did you like it? Good, awesome. Someone's like, no, I hated it. Well, some people loved it. All right, so you got this old story, but all of a sudden, um, Netflix decided to reboot the, the, the storyline. They didn't make a sequel. They did not make a sequel to Lost in Space. They go back to the same Robinson family. Robinson, right? Yeah. They go back to the same Robinson family, and they are trying to tell the story through a different eyes, through a different skin. It's a reboot. It's a new telling of the original storyline from that family. And, and if you watch, if you, you know, it's massively important in comics. Because in comics, you've got, back in the day, you've got nerdy, nerdy little 13-year-old Errol McFadden's out there reading comic books. And this is amazing. I love it. And then all of a sudden, they, this, someone says, I can make money off of Errol if I just put it onto the big screen. Now here's the thing that's interesting as you're watching people reboot storylines is that you realize even then they realize when they don't get it right and they need something new because they're going to start with Tobey Maguire but eventually they're going to get to Andrew Garfield and then they're going to finally get it right with Tom Holland. So, it's, woo, is right. New is something that we understand to be better. This is the latest. This is the most relevant and for the early followers of Jesus to watch your friend and rabbi die should have killed the movement. But when they saw him rise and they talk with the resurrected Christ for 40 days and then they see what takes place after that, all of a sudden they realize that this Jesus is still with them. And not only that, this movement that they're a part of is not simply duct taped onto the past. It's a continuation of the past, but at the same time, it is radically and all-encompassingly new. There's three aspects when we look in the book of Acts of newness taking place. And there's actually so many more than that, but all we have time for is three that I want to talk with you about because the things that were impacting the early followers are still having ripple effects and shockwaves into 2018. This is the first thing for them. For them, there was a new starting point. There was a new starting point. Take a look at Acts uh, chapter 2 in the next verse after that one verse that I, we, we left off at, or, or page 391. Actually, if you look at the, the, the let's reread the last verse that we, we read together. Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then he says something really funny. I love this. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. To which some dude in the crowd's like, what's wrong with that? 
No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will see visions. Your old men will see dreams. And he goes on from there. He's lifting an ancient prophecy and saying, you're watching it right now. And he ends that prophecy from what Joel said way back in the day. And everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter continues, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Here's the thing. These people, these Jewish people had starting points. Uh, their starting points were like, the, as a Hebrew people, again, they looked at their past and they said, our starting point is we, we follow the God who we believe created everything. It's not like I'm just trying to invent some God who invented this or invented love. We have one God who created everything. We're a people of that. that that's our starting point. Or we're like God's chosen people. Like what God did was he said, I'm going to choose one tribe to be my model home of my work to the whole world around. And so I'm going to choose the Hebrews. And our starting point is, and if you read the Old Testament, their, their intro line, like their like starter line when they're meeting people, is we are the people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He chose us. Or, or you know what, you go through the Old Testament and their starting point is the Exodus. Look, we were slaves, and we were a minority movement in a land that oppressed us. There was no hope for us. And God came in and he rescued us out of slavery. And so the exodus is, is their starting point. And on and on and on, they have these starting points with this is who we are. This is our identifier. The thing that's amazing is that all of a sudden, all these Jewish people are saying, you know what? Those things happen and those are all important aspects of our history. But the loudest, most prominent starting point from us from here on forward is the cross. The most important statement speaking over us is the fact that God himself became man, died on the cross, but didn't stay dead, rose again, letting us know this is not the end of the story for him or for us. This is our starting point. So that everything before this is looking towards the cross and everything after this is looking back at the cross as the most identifying, identifying reality and historical moment in a person's life. And this is the thing. We need this. We need this. In 2018, you need this. Because what we do as humans is this. We have starting points that we bank everything off of. And a lot of times they look like this. We think back to that moment when we were a kid or a teenager or a young adult, and there's something that happened or said, something that we did or something that was done to us. And we make that the starting point, that even though it could be 10 years or 20 years or 50 years later, in our darkest moments when anxiety creeps in, where do we go? Right back there. That becomes the starting point for us that is the most loudest identifier over our life. Letting us know that when we get to our, our darkest moments, it reminds us, You're, you haven't changed a bit. This is still you. Or what we do is this. We may have come out of a situation like that. And we said, you know what? 
that's not going to be my story. My, I am a, my own person, and so I'm going I'm to be the type of person who's knocking it out of the park in successes, whether it's a relationship or it's a job, and we, put all, we push all the chips in on this one thing. I am valuable because I'm in this relationship. I am valuable because I got this job or I got this promotion or somebody told me I was doing good. I got the GPA. I got accepted into this college. I've got these friends. That's my starting point. So that when life stinks, I can always go back to that point and say, see, I'm still valuable. See, I'm still, I don't have to be destroyed until that starting point lets us down. As Christians, we need a new starting point. As humans, we need a new starting point. And the new starting point is the resurrection, the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. So that whatever happened back here, this is my starting point. This is the most powerful identifier over me. And whatever happens in my life from here on out, when I fail, I'm not destroyed. When my job crumbles, I'm not destroyed. When my marriage or my relationship crumbles. I'm not, am I discouraged? Am I ripped apart by him? Absolutely. Does it destroy me? No, because this isn't my starting point. When I'm down here, I go right back to the most pronounced identifier over my life. The fact that God looked at me, totally not worthy, and said, I will make you worthy because I love you. I will restore you because you're mine. That's my identifier. That's my starting, if you're a Christian, that's your starting point that you can bank on from that point to the day that you die. For these people, that was not only something that was a starting point, but for the early, early Christians, it was also something, a new way of processing their past. See, because again, as a Hebrew people, they bank on their past and they like bring it up a lot. I don't know if you, you're friends with a person or married to a person or in a relationship with a person who can't get over their past. Um, where they just keep on bringing it up. Maybe it's like really good. Like, oh man, well, when I lived in, you know, this state over here, when I lived in Texas, it was, a, I don't know, that's not how people from Texas talk, but whatever. Yeah, let's just say they did. When I lived in Texas, oh yes, um, things were so great, you know, and, and they paint the picture of like everything was better back here. Or, you know, someone who's like everything in their past was garbage and they keep on letting you know how hard their life has been. Hebrew people had a hard time getting over their past too, but it was for good reason because it was such an amazing past. They got a chance to see front row seats to God's work. And so, yeah, they go to the creation. God, we're the people of God who created everything. He chose us as, a, as his family. We were slaves and he freed us. He gave us his directions on, uh, for life on the, on the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. We weren't just like shooting in the dark trying to figure out life. He, direct, he loved us so much that he gave us direction. And on top of that, he promised that we were going to have a place, a country of our own. And as you go through the Old Testament, you see that he kept his promise. Now, that's all Old Testament. But all of a sudden, because of what Jesus did, because of the cross, it caused them to look at their past differently. All of a sudden, they realized that everything that God was doing there was warming up to the fact of what he was doing now. Yes, he created photosynthesis and the central nervous system and a universe we're still blown away with how vast it is and how amazing it is. But on top of that, he entered into an eight-year-old's life when that eight-year-old realized that he had sin separating him from God and asked Jesus to forgive them. Did he know everything about life? No, he didn't. But in that moment, Errol McFadden became a Christian. And all of a sudden, we see that, that, that there's a new creation that's taking place. Photosynthesis is rad, but this... Is personal. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says that, or 2 Corinthians 
5.17 says that, that we're a new creation. We, we, we don't even judge people the way we used to because all of a sudden the old is gone, the new has come. Yeah, Exodus happened, but there's a new Exodus. And as amazing as it was for Moses to march the million and a half people, two million people through the Red Sea, that was miraculous, amazing. But you know what's also miraculous? The fact that there's been addiction in this family for so long and they've been absolutely addicted to this or that. And all of a sudden, because of Jesus, they experience the opportunity and the hope that comes from new life and not being shackled to their slavery. The exodus is something where all of a sudden there's a new exodus from sin's bondage. Oh, we jumped over the chosen family. Sorry about that. The chosen family of Hebrews is big, but guess what? Jesus said this in Matthew, uh, Matthew 28, 19. He said, take this message and only tell Jewish people about it. No one else. It's our secret. No, he didn't say that. He said, take this and go to all nations, all kinds of people. I want all colors, all color palettes of ethnicities, every national backdrop. This family is far more vast than it's been one tribe of people. This is for all people. And so we get the chance to be a part of that. Because of the cross, we see that. God's direction was written in stone when they got to Mount Sinai. But the prophets said that something would happen in the future. God wasn't going to write his laws on our heart. Not, wasn't going to write his laws on stone, but in our heart. And all of a sudden, after the cross, we see that, that God's direction is written on our hearts. This blew Paul away, because he was a lifelong Jew who understood the importance of having laws written on, in stone. And all of a sudden, Paul is saying, you know, this is the weird thing about Gentiles. They're not Jewish. And, and not only are they not Jewish, they don't have any of these laws. But, and yet, because of Jesus, God's like directing them in their hearts, and they're like living for God in spite of the fact that they don't have the Jewish training and upbringing that we have. Because the cross, not only do we anticipate entering into a promised land, which God kept his promise on, but in 2018, we anticipate entering into the new heaven and the new earth. And we're waiting for God to do the very same thing that he promised us to do. And when, if this is true, this changes how we look at everything. Because we look at the cross, we go, okay, now all of a sudden we're looking at a life that can actually be empowered by him and lived for him. Paul said this in Colossians, since then you've been raised with Christ. So the, the crucifixion happened, and he rose from the grave. And if you're connected to that, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Not on, and for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature— sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So Paul, Paul is saying this amazing thing. He's saying, if you're in Christ, there's, you now have a capability to look at your reality differently. You look at your past differently. And you're looking and saying, you know what? There's things that I did in my past before I was a Christian, or perhaps even after I became a Christian, that were not right. And a very Christian thing to do is to hide these and to live in secret sin and to feel like, you know what, I can't tell anybody about this. Certainly not Christians. Certainly not people at church because they're going to totally, totally judge me. But Christ has got this amazing thing of saying, no, actually, I could be completely honest about the fails that I've made and, and the things that have happened to me because he's forgiven me and he's told me that I'm valuable. The things that I did that I wouldn't want to tell my closest friend that I did, he knows and he loves me anyway. The things that happened to me that made me feel like I was worthless, he knows. And he said, I love you so much that you're worthy of my life. 
So my whole past is now totally changed. And as I'm walking past the cross, it causes me to say that I can now look to him and say, my life is now empowered by this reality. I'm not ashamed. I'm living as a, a living trophy of your work. I'm not perfect. No, by, by no means am I perfect. But I'm someone who can actually exhibit this reality of what God's doing in me. And what God does in you is this. Because the cross, all of a sudden, you've got this amazing thing. Just like when it was saying that, that God writes his laws on our hearts. Christians who are walking, following after Jesus, the newness that happens in you is that when you become a Christian, all of a sudden, when you fall into sin, or you sprint into sin, all of a sudden, you have this, this guilt. Now, we hate talking about that, right? Because no one, how many of you like guilt trips? Last service, there was one sick person who's like, I hate guilt, I love giving guilt trips. But I, I, no one likes someone giving you a guilt trip because you feel like you're, you're garbage, right? Like, who are you to judge me? Get on my face, right? No one likes guilt trips. But here's the thing that what, what we do with English is we make what the Holy Spirit does, which is to give us guilt, we turn it into the same thing that is shame, and it's not. Here's the difference. Our enemy, Satan, his goal is to distance us from God, right? And so when we get into an activity or an action or a thought process that's far from God and his ideal for us, Satan reminds us, look what you did. You, you are messed up. Do you realize how dirty that is? Do you realize how backwards that is? Do you realize that if people knew this about you, they would never accept you? And they, sh I mean, you can't even accept yourself, and you shouldn't, because you you're scum. In fact, you know what? You tried to run so hard away from some of the things in your past, but look, they're still right here. Look at you. You're worthless. There's no hope for you. No one's going to love you, not really, and if, and if they found about, out about this, they certainly wouldn't. And what Satan does is he keeps us right there, paralyzed. Does that send us to God? No, it keeps us in secrecy. And the thing that the enemy wants to do is says, you better just look good on the outside or do enough good on the outside just so someone will accept you for something because if they knew the real you, they certainly would not. That's paralyzing. That's, what say, that's shame. Guilt is different. Guilt, the intention of the guilt is to get us back. Guilt is like a self-awareness like checkpoint. It's like a, a reality check. This, what you're doing is wrong. This way of thinking isn't right. It's not what God wants for you. This activity, I know that it might be accepted by everyone, right, but it's not cool. It's not right with God. And what it does is it reminds us of the not rightness, and then it allows us to come back, right back to the cross, so that we are walking free and liberated and not shackled by it. And the cool thing, again, because of the cross, is that we can actually be honest about it. Hey, I could talk with someone that, that I'm walking through life with that's a Christian that I can trust and say, listen, I'm struggling with this. I'm not only struggling, I'm like, like neck deep in it. And it's been a long time. I need your help. I need God's help. And all of a sudden, that person isn't paralyzed. And, the, and, and what they're, they're not getting the same message that Satan's saying. is like, look at you. This is the truest you. You're scum. They're, so, they're told, this isn't you. This isn't the truest you. And there's freedom. We have, because of the cross, a new way to process our past. It's leading to him, the liberty that he brings.
which also leads us to a, a, a courage that we didn't have before to actually live out what he's calling us to. This very unnatural thing which, seem, which cuts against the grain of sometimes the truest us. You take someone like Peter. Peter is a guy who Jesus should have fired a long time ago. Like Peter's the guy that seriously, if he was working for your company, you would just go like, okay, you, you can't work here. You, you're out. Turn in your keys, out. Because this is what Peter does. Jesus invests in him for three years, right? And then in the moment when Jesus needs him most, he runs away from Jesus, number one. Number two, he denies him. How many times? Okay, one time, you're like, okay, we need to have a face-to-face here. You can't do that. If you're my disciple, if you're going to lead people after I'm gone, you have to back me up. Don't deny me. Okay. And then he does it a second time. Okay, seriously, you can't be in leadership. There's no way you could be in leadership of this movement. You denied me twice. By the third time, you or I would say, okay, dude, out, out. Seriously, find another religion because you can't be in this one, right? But, but Jesus actually says, you are so unqualified. You're perfect. You're perfect for this. Why? Because you realize, of all people, how unqualified you are and how much you need me, and that I am your qualifier. I love this, because as soon as uh, at Pentecost, it seems like Peter's got this like, newfound courage and boldness. He comes right out of there, and he starts like, boldly proclaiming to all these people about Jesus. And, and, and he's in their face about it, and like that day, 3,000 people become followers of Jesus. And then they're like, all these people are meeting together in people's homes, and they're talking about what Jesus talked about in that 40 days from his resurrection to when he went back to heaven. And because Jesus went through and he unpacked the Old Testament. See, this is how this book was pointing to the cross. See how this, this was pointing to me. And he went through all that. So now they're like, just, they're sharing all this amazing stuff, and they're, they're blown away by it. And as they're doing it, they say, we can't stop this here. We got to like actually take this out. And so they, they take it into the temple courts, and they're telling people in the, in the Jewish temple courts about Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's, remember all the stuff that we've been looking at on the timeline of our faith? This is what he was doing. This is what he was doing. This is what he was doing. It's all about him. And, and then all of a sudden, they get in trouble. And on top of it, they heal a guy, which was not a good idea. But they did it because God wanted them to do it. And then all of a sudden, they get in, in Peter's face like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? And then uh, this is in a... Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 12, or the bottom of page 394. They start talking to these guys, and they say, listen, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage, the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. I love that line. These guys have not been to Bible college. There's no certificate of evangelism that they, were rece- they received. They were fishermen. There were, no, they, they were people that on the religious scale had nothing up against the religious guys that were getting them in trouble and bringing them into the principal's office. And so they say, listen, you got to just like shut up about this Jesus. Okay, so just shut up about it. And so then they're like, so I love the response because Peter's so sarcastic. He's like, okay, well, you're basically saying like, look, I know you guys are crazy smart religiously and we're just dumb people. So you tell me what we should do. Should we listen to you guys or God? Because I don't know if I'm like up to answer that religious question. You tell me, we'll wait for your answer. Because when it comes to between whether we should listen to God or you guys, I, I think the answer is that we should listen to God. 
And all of a sudden, they're like, what do we do with these guys? This is totally frustrating. And so then they, they, keep, they keep on preaching. And so they say, I got it. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to chuck the guys in jail. They chuck them in jail. And the cool thing that you see in the, in the Bible is that when you do jail time, God shows up. I don't know if you, I know some of you guys have done some jail time. I don't know if God showed up like this. But it, with these guys, an angel shows up and says, all right, go. Go talk to more people about Jesus. And they're like, okay. They walk on out. They go back to the temple courts where they got in trouble the first time. And they start telling people about Jesus again. The religious leaders show up to jail to chew these guys out again. And they're like, where'd they go? I don't know. They were just here and the locks are good. I don't know what's going on. And then someone shows up and says, Larry says they're back up at the temples talking about Jesus again. Should I go beat them up? No, don't beat them up. We don't want a scene. Just get them and bring them back here and let them know they're in trouble. Okay. So this guy goes on over here to get them. They're telling people about Jesus. Say, hey guys, you're not supposed to do this. You're supposed to come back here. Come back so we can like chew you out some more. And Peter and John are like, okay, just one sec. So I'll get to the rest of what Jesus said right after we get in trouble. Talk to you guys later. They come back willingly, and all of a sudden they're up in front of these guys, and this is what happens. Bottom of page 396, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God. When they're responding to these guys, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed. By hanging him on a cross, God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And at this point, everyone is just like, okay, we should kill them, right? Who votes to kill these guys? Peter and John. Let's kill, who, seriously, we need to end this movement. At that point, they have Peter and John get out of the room and this guy named, this Pharisee named Gamaliel says, okay, guys, listen, no. Don't kill them. We don't need any more martyrs. We kill them. We're going to put fuel on the fire of this movement. There have been crazy movements that have started up saying, we know the Messiah. And as soon as their Messiah dies, the movement dies. Christianity will never see the light of the day of the second century. Believe me, if we just step back, okay, just let these guys talk. Just, we'll tell them to stop talking about Jesus, but don't kill them. So then this happens in chapter 5, verse 40. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they never spoke about Jesus again. And Christianity died in the first century. No, that didn't happen. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is, not was, is the Messiah. Boom. I love that. And you want to know the thing I love about that most? These religious leaders could not get over the fact that they were unschooled and that they were ordinary. You know what that tells me? You want to know what's going to flip your world upside down? It will not be me. It will not be Manuka Bible Church. It's you. It's you. The bold, courageous version of you that can boldly live for Jesus. Right where you're at, God needs unschooled, not people who didn't go to Bible college, who have no certificate or degree, people who are students in junior high and high school, people who are union workers and non-union workers, people who work at ComEd, people who are stay-at-home parents, people who are teachers. We need people who are, who are actually, wherever God has you, who's living out 
the reality of what Jesus has done in them and to remember that it's not your schooling. My boldness does not come from my schooling. Your boldness does not come from your schooling, but from your story. The story that at some point Jesus intersected your life and showed you that your sin was not the end of the story. Your story is what leads you into that reality. Each and every one of us needs a new starting point. Each and every one of us needs a different way of processing our past where the cross is present. And each one of us needs the courage to live out the life that God has. And if we do, we will actually experience the newness that those first followers experienced that maybe you haven't experienced because you've been this side of that experience. There's this um, kid um, at this high school camp. I, I go up and I visit our, when our, our teenagers go up to, our high schoolers go up to Baraboo to Expeditions Unlimited. I like to go up there and say hi to them. And a lot, they climb these cliffs, like 100 foot, 50 to 100 foot section of cliff. And they climb on up and they rappel down. And I cl- get up on the cliffs and I like take pictures of them and stuff and send them to their parents. Like, look what we're doing with your kid. It's awesome. This one kid, he climbs up the side, he gets all the way up to the top and he touches the carabiner and then he freezes. I mean, it took a lot to get him up to that point, but he's scared to death now. Because in order to go down, if you've got the cliff like this, you you have to actually lay back and trust that the harness and the rope and the belayer below has got you and he's bringing you down bit by bit. And this kid knew that and he was scared to death because he did not want to do this. And so he just clutches onto the rope as hard as he can. And he's just like, I can't go down, I can't go down. I'm like, you could go down, dude, you got this. Like, no, I can't, I can't. I'm like, you gotta trust, you gotta trust this rope. This rope has got you. This rope, this rope, can, this rope is so strong, it can actually hold a car. And he said, I don't care if it can hold a car. I wanna know if it can hold me. As Christians, it's one thing to hear stories from the Bible and go, that's so great for them. I just wish that I could experience a taste of that in my life. And a lot of times it's because of the fact that we're, we're, that's cool, that God could do that with them. But I want to know if he could be there for me, that he could step into my life and allow newness in spite of my context, in spite of my circumstances. And the message of the gospel and the message of the Bible is this. If you're in Christ, you have a new starting point. You have a different way of processing all of the reality from your past, present, and future that's banking on him. And if you're in Christ, you have a courage that's foreign to you. It's above and beyond your pay grade, but it's given to you to actually live out the days that you have between now and when you meet him face to face. And when we forget that, and we do, because we're human, we have this opportunity to come back and remember That's what the Lord's table is. That's what communion is. Where we remember that what our salvation is banked on is not us and our good deeds, our faith and the strength of who we are, but the fact that we've released ourselves and surrendered to the work of Christ. If you're a Christian, in just a moment, I want to encourage you to exit your rows and to take the bread and the cup and come back to your rows on the right-hand side. And and actually have a moment of of spending some time in repentance saying, God, have I been not listening to your Holy Spirit's conviction of certain things in my life where I just needed to surrender that and I've been going so far thinking I'm fine. And if you're not a Christian, this table could be for you. A Christian is simply someone who says, 
I'm done making my starting point my work and my life and my regret and my shame. But instead, I'm making my starting point the most strong identifier over my life, Jesus. His work on the cross, him taking my sin so I didn't have to have separation from God for all eternity or even in this life. If that's you, putting your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then you are starting new today. And this table is for you. The bread represents his body. The cup, his blood poured out for you.